Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College. She's written about the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, and the American West. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Guardian, among many other outlets. She is the co-host of the Vox Media podcast, Now and Then, and author of the nightly newsletter, Letter from an American, which has over one million subscribers, and I'm willing to bet many of you are in this audience tonight. Her latest book is titled, again, Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America. Please do pick up a copy. copy. Jeff Engel, Jeffrey A. Engel, is the founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and professor in the Clements Department of History. He has taught American history, international relations, and grand strategy at the University of Wisconsin, Yale University, and the University of Pennsylvania and Haverford College. At Texas A&M's Bush School of Government and Public Service, he was a professor and director of programming for the Scowcroft Institute for International Affairs. Please join me in welcoming both of these fantastic speakers to the stage. Thank you very much again to the two, both of you. Thank you, Liz. Liz disappeared. There you are. <laughs> Thank you, Liz, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it's so nice to see such a nice crowd come out. And obviously, uh, you all know why, because this is an absolutely fascinating book. And I think we're all eager to hear your thoughts on the state of American democracy and the state of the country and the state of politics. And try not to depress us too much, if that's possible. <laughs> um, and of course, we do have time for questions, and I believe cards are going around, or maybe they already did, to ask questions, so please do that as well. Um, if you're going to take pictures, this is my better side. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. Uh, okay. Well, welcome. I'm laughing. I actually was on stage with somebody who said exactly that. Like, I need to be on this side of the stage because that's my good side. I'm really? Like, People have good sides? It never, it never occurred to me to look. Yeah, I always yeah. presume I'm perfectly symmetrical. I thought he was kidding, and he wasn't. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, it's a great pleasure to be here. And thank you all for having me. It's a pleasure to be in Dallas, and certainly to be here with the World Affairs Council is, is very exciting. And with a foreign affairs guy, I've already warned him that I want to talk. I want to ask questions of him in this moment, rather than I know what I think, but I want to know about foreign affairs. They have to pay to come to our university for that. <laughs> oh, that's so, right. That's sorry. right. This is, this is Dallas. OK. Uh, so let's talk about this. Uh, fascinating book. And we already talked a little bit in the back about how I want to ask you about the w structure of the book, the way you conceived of the book. But what is this book about? What do you want people to take from, from this book? Well, those are different questions. So what I want Answer people to take from this book is that the future of this country is in our hands. It's a book about agency at the end of the day. But the reason it's structured the way it is is because I was asked to write a book that had a series of short essays answering the questions that everybody asks me every day. How did the party switch sides? What was the Southern strategy? Um, what does it mean to be a liberal? What's up with the electoral college? You know, all that kind of stuff. And what I realized was that the question people ask me most often is, how did we get here? What on earth is going on? And how do we get out? So this, the book is structured beginning with how did we get here. It starts in 1937, goes to 2015 in the first section of 10 short essays, and then 
the middle section is the years from 2015 to, I think, 2021. I don't actually remember. And then the, the final section starts again with Colonial America and goes to the present. And the, the reason for that was that I wrote the essays. Excuse me. <coughs> I wrote the essay. It's been, a, it's been a long tour. I wrote the, and there's a lot of germs out there. I wrote the, um, I wrote the essays, and then I put them, and I didn't look back at them. I wrote them, and I put them in a file, and then I wrote all of them, and then I took a break from them. And you know, Stephen King says there is no editorial tool quite as good as a drawer. And, and that's really true, <laughs> because I picked them back up three months later, and the story that was there was not what I had intended to write. And it was, I think, a reflection of the people with whom I correspond every day and who read me, people like you. And that's why the book is dedicated to my readers. <coughs> um, so um, what I found when I picked it back up was it told a different story than I expected it to tell. And that was the story of how authoritarians can manipulate people through the use of language and the use of a fake history that suggests there is a perfect past somewhere that we can get back to if only we do what they say. And what that suggested was how American democracy has come under great threat, how that great threat became a movement between 2015 and whatever that section ends it with. And then crucially, how we can use those same tools, language, and an accurate history to reclaim American democracy. So that's why it's organized the way it is. That's what I initially set out to do, was write those essays to answer questions with a thought, you know, maybe they'll get excerpted. But then what emerged was something entirely different. And it was an alchemy, I think, that was between my pen and my readers. It, it, it felt like it really, in many ways, wasn't my book. It was your book. Mm. That's a, very, that's a very good way to think about it, a very good way to put it. And I, I'm curious, if you don't mind, could, those questions that you raised at the very beginning are really quite crucial. You know, where did the Southern strategy come from? How, why did the party switch, et cetera? What were some quick answers for people? Why, why did the country, uh, why did the Southern strategy occur? And I asked that specifically because uh, I have been impressed living in, in Texas now for 20 years, how few people, how many people are unwilling to accept the standard historian explanation for why the Southern, for why the party switched. What's the Southern, what's the traditional? Well, race history? is at the center of it. Yeah, well, race is the center of pretty much everything. Well, there is that. Uh, so how would you tell the story of why the party switched? Well, actually, the, I think if there is a new version in here of, of how the party switched is the, I think, and, this, and I'm not sure how much of this is in the book, because the book, of course, you finish a book months before it actually comes out. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is a game changer for this country in ever so many ways, obviously by protecting the right of minority, of political minorities and racial and ethnic minorities to vote. Um, we, and, and that we know. But it also forced the political parties to deal with what it was going to mean if, in fact, we were going to have a multicultural voting base. And so that's 65. Now, now keep that in mind. What happens with the, the Southern strategy and how the parties switch sides is that the, the Republican Party, it's not clear how they're going to stand with regard to race, nor is it clear how the Democrats are going to stand with regard to race, certainly coming out of World War II. 
because during World War II, of course, FDR and then following up uh, with um, Harry Truman, the Democrat Harry Truman after World War II, they began to talk about civil rights and began to use the federal government in ways to break down racial, racial boundaries, right? But what are the Republicans going to do? And one of the things that the Democrats have a problem with after World War II is the fact that the base of the Democratic Party, sorry if I said Republican there, I meant Democratic, the base of the Democratic Party were the older Southern senators. You know, and because of, because of seniority rules in Congress, they tended to have control of, the, of the, most of the committees, for example. So what are the Democrats going to do? Again, and what are the Republicans going to do? So then, of course, we get in 1952 and taking office in 1953, we get Eisenhower. And because Eisenhower is a Republican and a Republican who has the history behind him of the civil rights wing of the Republican Party, Eisenhower begins to court the idea of, of an, a multicultural country. And it's under Eisenhower that we get the appointment of Earl um, uh, Charles Warren to uh, Earl Warren, I'm sorry, to um, to the head of the Supreme Court. Uh, and he, of course, was the Republican governor of California. Uh, and Eisenhower was very aware that he had been involved in desegregation issues in California. And under him, you know, just three months after he's appointed to the court, we get um, Brown versus Board of Education. So that's 54. Now, now how is that going to play out? 54, we also get uh, a reaction to Brown versus Board with people like William F. Buckley Jr. in 55 starting the National Review. And the National Review from the very beginning says it's going to tell the violated businessman side of the story because they're very anti-business regulation. But from that first issue, he brings on board segregationists to write. So by, by 60, of course, you have people like um, Barry Goldwater co contemplating a run for the presidency. And he, an Arizona senator, really is running on the idea of rolling back not only business regulation, but also the Supreme Court decisions that have advanced the idea of, of civil rights. And in 64, after Nelson Rockefeller crashes and burns because he has a problem with his zipper, um, <laughs> you have um, uh, the Republican Party turning to Barry Goldwater to become the presidential nominee. And when Barry Goldwater is nominated in 64, by the way, those three civil rights workers are still missing. So when he gives that, the, the ones who are missing in, in uh, Mississippi during the Freedom Summer of Mississippi, when he gives that extremism in defense of liberty is no vice speech, knowing those three civil rights workers are missing, he knows exactly what he's saying. And it's the state of South Carolina that actually puts him over the top to get that nomination in 64. Well, he bur crashes and burns in that, um, in that election. There's somebody else kind of unimportant running. <laughs> this is Texas, folks. And, um, and, but he does pick up Arizona and the five states of the Deep South. Mm -hmm. So all this to say, then you get 68. And you never thought I was going to get back to the Southern strategy, did you? <laughs> Nixon's got a real problem in 68, because Nixon has to figure out how he's going to manage not only the, 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 um, the, the uh, segregationists under Wallace, but also this problem in the Republican Party. Is he going to go uh, Barry Goldwater? Is he going to go Eisenhower? And then also, of course, his, his opponents. So what he does is this. In 64, Strom Thurmond, who had been a staunch segregationist, 
had very publicly switched sides to back Barry Goldwater. I mean, in the press conference, the whole thing, I'm going to vote Republican. So Nixon goes to Strom Thurmond and says, if you will stay with the Republican Party, we will cease to use the federal government to promote desegregation. And, and it's, he does, it's in his memoir, which I would tell you you could have my copy of it, but I just gave it away the other day. He says, you know, this is, this is what he did. And so he brings those unreconstructed Southern Democrats into the Republican Party because he needs them as part of his coalition. And he's trying to break the Wallace coalition at the same time. So, so with that, Southern strategy, which was the strategy of pulling them into the coalition, that's when we get the Republican Party's shift toward uh, ceasing to protect civil rights, but also catering to that wing of the former Democratic Party. You know, that's interesting, because I, I would agree with everything you just said, but I think I would have told the story maybe 180 degrees different in that, and maybe this is a Texas bias, of saying that you know because there were changes in civil rights because the federal government was moving more and more towards civil rights and because the Democratic Party had always been the party of the South and Jim Crow, that left Southern Democrats looking around. And so it wasn't, both sides have to happen at the same time, obviously. But I think I would have put the impetus more on Southerners giving themselves up as an opportunity more than Nixon and, and okay. others. You can, you can have it that way, but they certainly got married there in 68. They did, they did. I mean, yeah, but, you know, but you know what's interesting to me is the Democrats. Because the Democrats don't know what to do either, because they've just lost their base. Mm -hmm. And they're going to spend a long time trying to figure out what it means to have a multicultural democracy. And so they, you know, in 68, they have a teeny tiny little problem in Chicago, um, which is actually interesting because the reason that they are in the place they are in Chicago is because the place they were supposed to meet is burned to the ground. So they're actually in a, in a, in a building that's close to where Mayor Daley lives which is one of the reasons he was so determined there was not going to be any problem there. And meanwhile, the Republicans met in Key Biscayne, wasn't there? It was somewhere Miami, in Miami. Thought, it was yeah, Miami. Miami yeah. And they met where there were two bridges, so they shut off the bridges so there, weren't, there wasn't any disturbance with the Republicans. Geography matters, right? Yeah. And then the, so the Democrats try and figure out what they're going to do, and they decide they're going to include way more people in their, in their, um, in their uh, in the DNC and in the, the, the caucuses. And then, of course, that gives them 72. And, and, and McGovern, and McGovern wins Massachusetts and DC, and not even his home state of South Dakota, which is like, that's not a good thing. Um, so then they back way off, and they come up with their own new systems of superdelegates and all the things that so many people now wonder where it came from. That came from saying, we can't have another McGovern issue. And I think it's taken until, until the present for the Democrats really to get their feet under them as a party that really is going to honor the Voting Rights Act of 65, hmm. at the same time that the Republicans, of course, are, are lining up now behind John Roberts, who made his entire career on fighting the Voting Rights Act of 65. So the reason I identified the Voting Rights Act as being so crucial is I think in many ways in whatever year we're in, 2023, we're seeing that play out even still, which is kind of. Well, so when I think of 65, obviously the Voting Rights Act, yes, but I also think about the immigration reform. And that, I think, is another wave of change that those who, as you described earlier, those who are interested in rewriting a perfect past, usually that perfect past is somewhat monochromatic. 
Uh, and the fact that we have a, a massive influx of new peoples into America at the same time that there's a party shift going on, uh, I think I might wonder which is more important long term, the Voting Rights Act or the Immigration Reform Act. Well, they kind of go hand in hand. So the do. Voting Rights Act, of course, enables <clears throat> black and brown people to vote. But the Voting, the voting Rights Act of 65 is, you know, is such an interesting law because the, the issue is that in, 20, in, in 1924, we get a major immigration reform that lets people in by, by, by country. Um, and, and it's really very categorical mm -hmm. and problematic. So they decide after World War II and after all the colonial wars that they're going to redo, Cong they, Congress decides it's going to redo our, our immigration laws so they don't say we're going to take the good guys and not the bad guys. Yeah, I mean, it's important to, to note, in, just if you don't know, in 24, they decide we want to basically replicate the population of the United States from before 1890, Bef you know, before my people showed up is basically what it is. Well, so then they decide they're going to make it much more fair. But crucially, the Southern Democrats who are terrified of the influx of people from uh, black and brown people insist that central to that new immigration law needs to be that you can have family immigration. And they fully expect that's going to mean European immigration. And of course, what it meant was, was just the opposite, that we had much more family immigration from black and brown countries. And so it, it turned out to do exactly the opposite of what those people who wanted that in the law wanted. And the, the, that Immigration Act and the following supplements to it never quite managed to deal with um, the, the the need for labor and, and where the labor was going to come from. So I want to make sure that we. I can't hear sound up there. Is it God? <laughs> Is it off or on? Oh, oh. I always hear music when I talk to Heather. <laughs> um, Let's focus back on the book for a second. You, know, you, you mentioned, you know. Which has nothing to do, has no, mentions nothing about this. This is so much fun. I don't get to talk about any of this stuff in the book. Well, so let's talk about the, the part that you wanted us to, to take away. The, the, you, know, oh, the you, you, have, you have a new interpretation, uh, a new emphasis, I should say, that I think is really quite dramatic and really quite important. I'd love for you to have the opportunity to lay it out for people. So if there is something, well, actually, there is some stuff new that I want to ask you in the book. Do you want to start with that and, and end up with the book, or do you want to? It's, she says yeah. yes. Yeah. So, so there was some really interesting foreign affairs stuff in the book that it strikes me that you probably have a lot more to say about. And that's that in the, the, the middle of the book is really scary because it's all about the Trump years. And if you strip out the, the, the noise of the Trump years, which is what the letters from an American talked about, so-and-so gets fired, so-and-so writes a letter, you know, you know, if you strip all that out, the steps of turning a rhetoric into an authoritarian movement are terrifying. And I'll tell you, when I reread the, the page proofs, I actually called my agent and I said, we got a real problem because nobody's going to read this book. They're going to get into the second section, and they're going to get so depressed, they're going to put it down, and they're not going to make it to the third section, which is the interesting section that I will talk about. But in that middle section, one of the things that really jumped out to me was the degree to which money from the former Soviet republics flooded the United States mm -hmm. after 1991. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about that? Because it was really news to me. Did you know that? 
I did not know that. Money from the former Soviet Union flooded the United States. Uh, but, but why but matters? Why it matters How is because that, that money, as I understand it, primarily went to conservative causes. In particular, a lot of money went to the NRA. Uh, and the idea was, as I understand it, that if those, that those are the groups that are going to be more supportive of Russian independence. Uh, not just of Russian independence, but also of, of the growing authoritarianism within Russia. And that the Democratic Party was the party that was preaching uh, democracy, and the Republican Party was a party that was preaching free markets. And that the Soviet, in the post-Soviet phase, the money was going into the free markets, and they wanted American support for that. And also, the more disrupted American politics were, the more free hand would be held by Putin and others, or those like Putin, to operate the way they wanted to. But so is it fair to say, do you think, that one of the things that really jumps out to me is after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, right, that the United States made the mistake of thinking that democracy and capitalism always traveled hand in hand. Yes. And so what the U.S. really did, especially, and it started even before that with Reagan, um, because you could, you could, people on the far right could, uh, in other countries, could get money from the U.S. government by advertising themselves as being anti-communist in the 80s. And that's really where Paul Manafort gets his feet under him as a lobbyist, is working for what they call the torturer's lobby. Um, and the, that by, 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 by pressing markets, a market-based mm -hmm. world, and abandoning democracy, not abandoning it, but saying we don't care about democracy, we care about free markets. Well, I, 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 I think the problem is that the amount of money that the government was ever going to put into promoting democracy <clears throat> is just a sliver of the amount of money that private investment had to put into opening up the Russian market. Uh, and reformulating and reselling the Russian market. So if I'm the you know, United States Agency for Peace and my budget is $20 million a year and I'm supposed to promote democracy in the Soviet Union and next thing you know, Bank of America comes in and says, well, we're going to invest $9 billion. Who are you going to listen to? Do you think that, that Bank of um, and I'm, I, I don't know I, Bank I, of I made up yeah, Bank of America. We make it big, yes, Bank I, of America. That was an example. I have a bank account there. <laughs> Maybe not anymore. No, I did feel a buzz. That's funny. Um, but, um, but, but then you have the issue of the fact that if you're a Russian oligarch and you have taken over a, a former Soviet republic and you've got gazillions of dollars or gazillions of rubles to put somewhere, Weirdly, you want to put them in democracies yes. because you need to have the protection of the rule of law. Right. So you go into those democracies and then you give money to those causes that do not promote democracy, that in fact focus on market values and focus on, um, on, on destroying the very systems of law that you need, has put us in this really bizarre bind. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting to focus on the Soviet Union as a, as a case study here, former Soviet Union, as a case study. But to be honest, I think that we see, this is, a, this is also an American manifestation, that we have naturally conflated not only markets with democracy, but financial success with all kinds of success. I mean, you don't see anybody who wins a Nobel Prize in physics going out and buying a football team. 
but somebody who develops a new software program can buy a football team. And the presumption is they know what they're doing because they've been successful. Now, I have to tell you that they're not. Uh, see, see former Washington team uh, as an example. And so it, it doesn't surprise me that the people who wanted to get favor, the people who were favored in the post-Soviet system were those who managed to accumulate the most wealth first. That they were presumed to have a better handle of what society needed because those were the people that Americans could speak to most easily. Those are the people who the conversations could occur most easily because those people had the biggest microphone, not necessarily because they were in favor of democracy but at all. Because they were the guys who stole everything first. They had the money, yeah. So if anybody's interested, there is an organization out of um, the UK called Chatham House that's done a ton, and if they're all, their reports are available online that talk a lot about the effect of Soviet, former, uh, money from the former Soviet republics in the UK. We don't seem to have something similar in the US. We have a couple of people who are looking at it, but they're really, really instructive because they talk about how they launder, how uh, Russian oligarchs laundered their reputations through cultural um, organizations, for example, you know, showing up at the symphony and, and buying cricket teams or whatever. And you know, it would be interesting to see something similar in the United States. Well, you know, if you want to see a place, we're getting away from the book. Um, but if you want to see a place, I think, that you could see direct Russian influence on a geopolitical decision of great consequence, I would not look to the 2016 American election. I wouldn't look to the 2020 American election. I would look to the Brexit, Brexit election. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that a lot of money came in run. from outside. Yeah, and, and by the way, think about why that would be in Russia's interest. Well, if you have a stable, strong, coalesced Western Europe, that's never been a real recipe for success for Russia. So what can we do to break down institutions that have seemed to be built up over the last 30 years? OK, I can't believe that I, I managed to, to weasel this so successfully. So, Jeffrey, <laughs> there seems to have been something that happened last night in the Senate that seems to me to be of interest as part of this discussion. Would you care to comment? <laughs> I, was, I was professional obligation. I was watching the Republican debate last night. Oh, how ironic is this? I was watching the Senate. We should like, <laughs> <be> like <clears throat> So what happened is the, the Senate um, Republicans, as a block, voted against the uh, supplemental aid package to Ukraine. And Russia is doing the happy dance today. Oh my God. And you know, Iran and Russia had a meeting today, and I don't know if you followed it, but Venezuela, this is not any of it in the book, by the way. And I'm happy to talk about the book. But this is actually really important. Venezuela had a vote on Sunday to take over two-thirds of Guyana, because Guyana is full of oil. They discovered oil in 2000. They, I'm sorry. I was like nouns. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil discovered, um, discovered oil under, not under, um, on, the, on the coastline of Guyana in 2015. And um, the, there is now, uh, uh, Venezuela had a, a referendum on Sunday that most people boycotted 
but enough people in the in the government said, oh, there's actually more than there were who, who voted here. They voted to take over two-thirds of Guyana, saying that they owned that property, even though that border was established in 1899, which is a complete destruction of the concept of a rules-based international order, which is what Russia's trying to do with Ukraine. Would somebody on this stage who studies foreign affairs like to comment? <laughs> Well, I think my professional opinion is it's not good. Uh, but it, it does raise, and I think I'm going to pull it back full circle a different direction, to suggest that one of the problems at the end of the Cold War, the central problem at the end of the Cold War, looking back, I think is how optimistic we were that the rules-based system would be not just acceptable to other people in the world, but would be desirous from the people of the world, that people would want to join the Western system, want to the American-led system, which equates free markets with democracy. And instead, I think we have been really surprised, we Americans, uh, have been really surprised by how uh, the world did not turn out quite as nicely as Francis Fukuyama told us it was going to. And I don't mean that as a disparagement of Fukuyama. I think he was perfectly timed for what he was saying. But it was not that we uh, could allow simply the appeal of democracy and the appeal of markets to be inexorable and to draw everyone in. That others, having gotten rid of communism, could now choose a different form of government than one that we liked, while simultaneously undermining our government too. So they should have talked to reconstruction historians because we they have some have, stuff to fact. talk about they that. But just fact. to be clear, when we talk about the rules-based international order, it's the system that emerged from World War II with the idea that you didn't no longer wanted to have a foreign affair. You should explain this. No, you're doing you okay? a good job. You, you didn't want to have a world in which big countries could take over little countries because pretty soon you ended up in world wars as we had in World War I and World War II. And just so you know, when you look at the 19th century in American foreign affairs, they literally, the, the Secretary of State would literally say, if there was a dispute, say, in Latin America, they would say, OK, let's hang back for a few months and see which side's going to win. And then we'll back whichever side's going to win. They didn't have any ideas about, oh, you shouldn't do that to the country, or, mm -hmm. oh, the, you know, they literally, it was might makes right. That's going to break down a little bit in the 20th century. But the idea of a rules-based international order said, listen, we all disagree about a lot of stuff, but we're going to put together a lot of rules-based orders. The UN, for example, NATO, um, there, you know, all the different organizations, including the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization, and including the, yeah. the UN and the um, I'm trying to work in here, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, yes. which has its 75th anniversary this week. Next week, I don't know what day of the week it is, on the 10th of December. Um, and so that we didn't have country, big countries taking over little countries. And one of the things that Vladimir Putin is very clearly trying to do, and I guess what I'm asking you, is I'm, am I wrong to identify him as, as the psychological big dog in this fight? You know, the Wagner Group and everybody destabilizing Africa, now destabilizing Latin America. Um, anyway, so, so he's very, tr very much trying to say, I want you to agree that I can take yes. Ukraine the same way I took Chechnya, the same, you know. Because if you do that, then it's a free-for-all, and I can take whatever I want. Yes, and it's not only can you take whatever you want, you have to 
every time there is an international incident, create a, no coalition, a new coalition if you want to respond. If you remember back to 1991, when George Bush said, we have a new world order, remember he was ridiculed because people listened to what he said, which was, we're going to have a world based upon the United Nations, we're going to have a world based upon rules, borders are going to matter, sovereignty is going to matter, et cetera. And people said, there's nothing new about that. We've been hearing that since 1945, to which Bush's response was, exactly. The Cold War got in the way. Now we're going to have it so that everybody can, can get into this system. So I think what Putin wants is a denigration, and others, is a denigration of, to your point, the rules-based system, so that now the US Senate is debating, is it in America's best interest to back this line or that line or another line in Ukraine, as opposed to debating, hey, isn't it wrong for someone to have invaded Ukraine? So the moment you get rid of the rules-based order, you have to create the coalitions anew. In, whether it's in Venezuela, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Taiwan. So, which seems like a recipe for disaster, I have to say. But so are, do you think that the radical right in America is backing that idea because they don't like Biden, or they're backing that idea because they have figured out that the United States is the biggest dog in the, in the world? so that we can start invading people? Because I listen to the idea, I'm sorry, I rarely get to talk to foreign affairs people. Um, but you know, I'm listening to them talking about invading Mexico, and that yes. worries me a lot. You know? So in the, in the debate last night, my daughter, who's a sophomore <clears throat> in, in high school, very astute, uh, when one of the candidates, and to be honest, it could have been any of them, said, we're just going to send in special forces to kill Mexican cartels, she said, isn't that an act of war? It is indeed an act of war. I was like, war, well, yeah. see, here's the thing. That's the kind of nuance that you don't see on stage. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so are they just not aware of what we're talking about when we talk about the breakdown of the rules-based international order? Or are they thinking, oh, let's break it down because we have more weapons than you anybody know, else? It's a good question. I, I am reminded that I'm supposed to be interviewing you. But uh, I would think that I am less impressed by the fact that the conservative wings of this country, the Trumpy wings of this country, want to invade other countries than I am the opposite, which is they are still burned by the investments that the United States put into, not only just during the Cold War, but after the Cold War, and especially after 9-11, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and said that the rest of the world took our money, the rest of the world took our, our lives, and look, I can't go to Iraq right now, I can't go to Afghanistan, what was the point of that 20, billion, 20, million, 20 years of investment? I think that's actually what's driving oh, that's more, that there's a, a greater isolationist, and I, I don't like the word isolationist because we should remember that Franklin Roosevelt used that word as an insult, and it stuck, but it's a good word. Uh, because I, I think that they are less concerned about putting American investment overseas, especially when they can argue, as President Trump did, that there's chaos and carnage going on in Appalachia and chaos and carnage going on in deindustrialization and the fentanyl problem. That if you have problems at home, any problem overseas must be less important, is I think a stronger driver of their argument. I did not realize that isolationist was an insult. Yes. Cool. All right, we're done. Thank you. <laughs> you have not I'm gotten sorry. to the third part. I didn't, I didn't answer the third part, yeah. and, and it is important. <clears throat> but wasn't that interesting? Yes. 
like we don't do enough foreign affairs in this country, and um, and and it's so exciting to be on the stage with somebody. Well, and we it'd be should. fun if we did it the other way, and I got to interview him. <laughs> the the third the third section of I think maybe I just did. <laughs> the third section of the book, and the and the the which is to me in my mind the interesting section, although I hope there's stuff in the other sections as well, obviously. <laughs> is it suggests that rather than focusing on a perfect past the way people in the radical right do, and I, and I use that term not synonymously with Republicans, by the way. You know, I wrote the history of the Republican Party. I, I could talk to you a lot about the Republican Party. The people who are now running the Republican Party are not traditional Republicans by any stretch of the imagination. So I call them the radical right, and I do not call them conservative because they're not conservative either. Liz Cheney is conservative. Um, Bill Kristol is conservative. George Conway is conservative. Judge Michael Ludig, a, a dear friend, is conservative. Um, but the, the idea of going back to a perfect past serves authoritarianism. The idea that there was a perfect moment in our past and that we can get back to it if only we follow traditional rules or religious rules that certain people would put in place if only people like me would go away is um, is serves the idea of their uh, of an authoritarian saying I can do this give me the power to to get rid of those people and I can make things perfect again but but their version of American history is not real it's not what we have ever had in this country from before the the uh, Puritans first put foot on in America they were already lamenting how badly we had fallen, right? This is, this is what, and, and this is quite interesting, actually, what that has done to American culture, the idea that we are always trying to be better, which is not a bad thing, by the way. But what the third section of the book says is that true American history says that our history has been characterized both by this idea that we are created equal, have the right to equality before the law, and have um, a right to a say in our government, all th three things that are outlined in the Declaration of Independence. But from the very beginning, those people who were not included in that vision, marginalized Americans, said, great, what about me? And because they always kept those principles of the Declaration of Independence in the forefront of our national experience, we have managed so far to avoid authoritarianism on the one hand, or, or communism on the other. And that vision of what about me has enabled us from the very beginning to expand liberal democracy when it comes into periods of crisis. And that, I think, is an interesting idea. And it steers in a funny way between the 1776 project that Trump emphasized so strongly and other versions of American history that say democracy is, has always been a mistake because it has always been characterized by racism and sexism and classism, which is true, but people like me don't think that that condemns the entire project, but in fact that that has in many ways been its secret sauce. Okay, questions? Well, but I do have a question about that because I, I, it is, that was one of the striking things in the book. This really is a unfortunately, wonderful. Unfortunately, they told us we have a hard out because we obviously could go on forever. I don't. They're going to have to kick us out. You know. They, uh, they did basically say they were going to hunt us down and kill us if we didn't. I know, and, and and I pointed out that I'm local. Yes. So there's only one of us in real trouble. But right. we knew I was in trouble anyway, right? Well, so this is a great book. <laughs> uh, 
But the focus on the Declaration is a very interesting choice because the Declaration is, I think we generally agree, the articulation of America's promise. But it's not a legal document for domestic affairs. No, no, but it, it's an important document for, for many reasons. But for this book, it's an important document. First, because one of the things that I try and do in the letters and that I'm trying to do in this reconstruction of a new American history, which is really at the end of the day what this book is about, is to make sure people have touchstones that they recognize so that you can say, yes, I'm part of that. I'm part of the Declaration of Independence and Fannie Lou Hamer and Rosa Parks and you know the 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 people that we have heard Link, Abraham Lincoln and George James Madison, not so much George Washington, never mind. Um, <laughs> but um, but also because that Declaration of Independence is crucially important to Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Because what he does with the Declaration of Independence is he says, okay, you elite Southern enslavers have stood strong on the Constitution with the idea that it protects property. But that has led you down the road of trying to construct a nation that is based on the idea of human enslavement entirely. And I could walk us through that, but we want to get to questions. Um, and so he says, I'm not going to stand on the Constitution. I'm going to stand on the Declaration. And when he says, you know, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, he's pointing to the Declaration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when he then talks about making sure that we protect a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and have a new birth of freedom, that's the Declaration. And that recentering of the, of the nation on the Declaration as opposed to the Constitution under Lincoln is so incredibly important because ever, well, even before that, but he really articulates it and ever since, if you have rights, you stand on the Constitution, and if you don't have rights, you stand on the Declaration. And if you ever are interested, Google declarations of, or declarations of rights, you will see that ever since then, Th you know, hundreds, thousands of groups have written their own declarations of independence to claim rights that they have been uh, excluded from before that. And so that's really very deliberate because that, those, those principles for all the fact that they were not articulated in the Constitution are, I think, what have enabled us to continually expand the concept of liberal democracy to include people that the founders who wrote the declaration did not. But I think you, you hit upon something very important that, and it was kind of a throwaway line because you're a historian, I'm a historian. We all as historians, I think, all most useful historians, understand that the past is not always a pretty thing. And that the aspiration of the Declaration has not yet been reached. That's right, and it and, never will be. Well, but, if, and, but I think it's central to our cultural wars right now and our history wars that there is a segment of the population that is particularly interested in, no pun intended, whitewashing all the bad out of American history, which strikes me as counterproductive to. If you, if you get rid of that, you get rid of what it means to be an American. Yeah. It is the struggle that has made America what it is. And that is, I think, crucial to the Declaration and the fact even that you know, the, the founders had, you know, the idea that the founders were perfect is bonkers. They didn't it's think a scientific so. way to look at it. No, they didn't think so. All right, I need to get to these cards because I'm getting nasty. I was going to say, if I'm watching, looking at your watch, I think you might be in trouble. I'm sure I am. Uh, this is from Sherry Goodwin. 
Has there ever been a time in history where a single media outlet has, I'm going to ask you to answer this as a 19th century person, where a single media outlet has had as much power over particular constituencies like Fox has over the Republican Party? Love your blog. <laughs> so not a single one. But I actually was somewhat dismissive of somebody the other day, and I kind of regret it because I, you know, 19th century, I'm like, oh, that's just not true. Um, before the Civil War, in the 18, between the 1840s and the 1850s, the American South so limited the information that was available to voters that it looked much like what we have with the Fox News um, uh, bubble. So for example, you could not deliver a newspaper to the American South if it didn't support slavery. There were books you could not own in the American South. People broke into to, uh, post offices to make sure that abolitionist literature did not make it into people's hands. You know, they didn't even put Abraham Lincoln on the ballot in 1860. I don't know if you know that, but but they they lived in a bubble that looks very much like that modern day bubble. So we have done this before, and one of the things that you hear with Lincoln again and again and again in the early days of his after he was elected is him saying. I'm not going to do the things you think I'm going to do. He's trying to get them to listen to him, and he simply can't get in there. You, you, he cannot get published in the American South. Mm -hmm. so, so we have that example. And one of the things about social media now, for all the negative things we have about it, and, and the, you know, we could talk at great length about that, it does mean that people can get information that they would not have been able to get living under that kind of a regime. So far? Well, so, so an example of this, and this is a long ago example, but I, you know, in the Texas legislature 10 years ago or so, when they were limiting uh, the, the, you know, the Texas textbook thing, one of the things that people like me were watching was the number, the amount of money that was going toward digital technology. Because what a lot of history teachers were doing was simply going on the internet themselves and finding their own material rather than, than using the textbooks that were approved as supplemental material. Now, obviously, things are changing in Texas education. But that was a real sign um, of what was coming out of the technological revolution, is that you might be told to use a textbook, but you could go online and find your own material. Mm -hmm. So uh, non sequitur. You're still on Twitter. I am still on Twitter, yeah. Have you thought about not being on Twitter? I hate Twitter with every fiber of my being. Okay. But you know why people like me are still on Twitter? The only reason we're still on Twitter? First of all, because I hate Marsha Blackburn so much that it's kind of fun to be there just to say, you're an idiot. But, but, um, but because Twitter is the only piece of social media that has very good DMs. Now, one of the other new programs has started having DM, direct messages. And that's where we get all our tips. Mm -hmm. So we can't get off of there until somebody else picks up DMs. And believe me, we are trying. So somebody has been trying to DM me through threads, but that goes onto Facebook, and it doesn't, they, they don't interface yet, which is insane, but they don't. So the moment, the second, the, the nanosecond it is possible to leave that steaming heap of dung in my rear view mirror, I will do it. But until it has that function, Twitter's the only place yeah. we got it. And that's why journalists, you notice the journalists haven't left? That's why the journalists haven't left. That's interesting. Okay. We'd all like to, I promise you. Uh, it's hard. 
because that is also the common the common arena. Still. So what I wonder is whether or not, and I know Musk, somebody just said to me, that's ridiculous, Musk won't sell because it's part of his um, ego not to. You know, he has just destroyed the value of that place. To me, it seems like you could pick it up at fire sale prices, put in moderators, everybody would flock back, you could flood it with advertising, make a killing, and then do whatever, but at least you could resurrect it. Well, one of the suggestions that was raised in the aforementioned Republican debate last night. I think it was Nikki Haley, but don't quote me on that, who said uh, w that no one should ever be allowed to post something anonymously. Oh, great. You know, there, there goes, talk about doxing. Not, not a freaking chance. Mm -hmm. So, no, I mean, I, I get it, and I can see certainly, you know, one of the things that frustrates me is, you know, I, I post on Facebook the same letters that I post on Substack, and the reason I take money on Substack is because I don't want to have to hire moderators again, um, because I moderate, on, I don't, I have moderators on Facebook. You can tell the crap, you know, you can tell the people who aren't real. You know how you can tell one of the easy ways? If you click on somebody's, um, avatar or whatever it is, and you go to their page, if they, if they post fundraisers and like dog pictures, um, and they have, when they post things, they get under, under 10 responses, it's almost, it, not almost, it's fake. And you can tell that, so if you block them, and it comes up and says, this can only block this one profile, it won't block the rest of these that belong to this person, you know that it's there. Facebook could do that if it wanted to. It absolutely could do that if it wanted to. But it values engagement because that, that makes it a much more valuable product. So, um, so I get wanting, you know, in many, many, like the, the Washington Post, you have to say who you are. And it's, it's behind a paywall, so other people can't see that. But boy, if you put that on Twitter, I mean, the stuff I get is vile, and nobody is, would be in the amazing. public, nobody else would be in the public sphere no, if it's, it's, that was going to happen. Uh, That's somebody who doesn't know anything about tech if they say you got to put your name out there. It was, and the Republican debate. Uh, <laughs> as a historian, what would you say is the average number of years it takes for a society to repair the damage done by dictatorships? That's a really good question because some people always say to me, you know, what's going to happen is what if what happens if Trump gets elected? And I always say, and I find this really psychologically fascinating, strong men always fall. They always fall. Tell me one who who hasn't fallen. But they do so much damage before they fall. And all I'm trying to do is cut to the chase so we can skip that damage part. Um, and I think the answer to that is how long they stay in power. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that I think is important about timing is that many people say, this, it, this is it. We, we can never recover from where we are. We're too far gone. And I always say, actually, I usually point to, to the 1850s, and I'm happy to do that if you would like. But because you're here, think about FDR. When Her Herbert Hoover is elected in 1928, He's, people are 100% behind the Republicans. They have solved the problem of poverty. They're, you know, they have managed to create this economy that perfectly marries business and government, and look how well everybody is doing. And of course, this is the myth. Everybody is not doing well. If you're a farmer, if you're a person of color, if you're not living in an urban area, if you're a worker, you are not doing well, but that's not the way it looks in the magazines. 
And so in 1928, it looks like it's a permanent Republican majority. Like they, are, they have just sewn it up. And Herbert Hoover says in his inaugural address, the only thing we have to do left, we have left to do is to figure out how to eliminate poverty. They're in forever. By 1932, the entire country has flipped behind the idea of a government that works for the average American and that is willing to treat that need as, as a war measure. You know, which always worries yes. me in the early FDR years. You know, I'm not sure I'd have voted for FDR. He was all set to, to turn the American. Oh, my goodness. I, I show FDR's inauguration speech, the first one, the one where he says, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And then I show the part that he actually meant, you know, where he said, I'm going to work with Congress, but if Congress won't work with me, I'm going to assume all the powers I would have as though we were invaded by a foreign foe right. and exact emergency uh, legislation, which, in case you're wondering, is the same term that Hitler used. Yes, you know. yes. So, so we have there, in the space of four years, a government that goes from, yeah, we're going to go full hedge on with, with Herbert Hoover and small government, turn the government over to business. This is just, it's just the best thing since sliced bread, to 180 degrees different. They turned on a dime, and they rebuilt American society in the space of a very few years. And I could do the same thing for the 1860s or the progressive era, if you'd like. So I, I think that that we can change the direction of American society on a dime. But if we don't, there's an awful lot of repairing to do. And if you, you think even just now about how much work we are trying to do to repair the, the great lapses in preserving our infrastructure over the last 40 years, you cannot repair all the roads and bridges overnight. And that, I think, is a sign of how quickly it, you know, I think it's almost like a mirror. If it takes this long to break it, it's going to take a long time to fix it. That's right. Uh, I'm told that we have time for one more question. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, aside from buying your book, what is the best thing that folks in the room here can do tonight to protect and preserve our democracy? Okay, actually, buying my book has nothing to do with that. <laughs> so you can skip that part. What you need to do is buy is, my book. Is buy his book. That's right. I should have started with that. But um, but two things we were talking about in the the green room. First of all, don't react to news this the day it advice. drops. This is great advice. And this is advice for your life too. I learned this at MIT when I was a professor at MIT, and they were trying to get us not to respond to phishing schemes on the brand new internet. They said anybody who wants you to react within a day is trying to sell you something and is trying to scam you. So take at least three days, at least two days, and plus the day, then take at least a day off and another day before you react. And that, in, in the, the information sphere, sorts a lot of stuff out. So you get the story right when you finally react to the story. I love that. I think everybody should do that. But next to that is take up oxygen. You know, one of the things that will reinforce our democracy is people who care about it saying, listen, these are the issues I care about. These are the, the, the principles I care about. No, I don't think it's OK that J.D. Vance today, a senator from Ohio, said that the Department of Justice should go after uh, Robert Kagan for writing an article in The Atlantic that says that Trump could be a dictator. The government should not go after journalists for what they print. Um, and I feel that very strongly, pretty obviously. But I wasn't thinking about myself. I was actually thinking of Evan Gerskovich, who's, who's still in prison in Russia. We don't want that. 
And one of the ways we get to where we, we've gotten to where we are is that, that a lot of people who care about the issues of American democracy thought that those guardrails were there and would always be there. And they are not going to be if we don't protect them. So take up oxygen and find a friend, uh, maybe many friends, to go with you to, do the, to, to protect democracy in uh, school board meetings and in town councils and all the places where radical voices who make up less than 30% of our political body, by the way, have become the dominant voices. Because for the next 11 months, it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. It's going to be ugly. And we all need support around us to make sure that we can speak up safely and to speak up our minds. So obviously, give to you know, vote and give to play. But, but just holding your ground and taking up oxygen, even putting your ass in the chair at a school board meeting is going to make a really big difference. So that's what I would say people should do. Although I'll, I'll tell you, I had a terrifying, not terrifying, disturbing experience last night from our local school board, uh, Highland Park. Uh, they, I got an email from the high school library listing all the books my daughter had checked out. Now, she checked out two different translations of Nietzsche. That's kind of cool. Why? I don't know why she needed the second. I really don't. But my point is, I thought that that was really quite shocking. Yes. But good places, good good place to stand to stand stand one's ground. I mean, yes. I think you know a fifteen-year-old should be allowed to read. So. Although perhaps not. And I'm going to turn things back over to Liz, lest I get in more trouble. Major. Major trouble. Turns out that we stayed pretty rowdy, I think. So give, let's give another round of applause. I think we could have listened um, for much longer, but thank you. We want to be sensitive to time, and I know we have, you're going to plans, and um, this is, thank you so much for being here. Uh, let's engage in democracy and the council.